Chris, and welcome to Brent and Chris Talk. We are back again. Again. We have uh, passed our one-month mark. Yeah, man. It's uh, flying by faster than I would have ever thought, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, having fun all the way. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I've learned a lot about different topics, everything we've talked about for sure. Um, I think this is probably the topic I know the least about, um, just offhand in terms of like, um, you know, tribal knowledge, if you will. Sure. But uh, I, again, learned a lot, and I think it's going to be a good week. So what are we doing this week? Well, uh, I think we should talk about how your week was first. That's a great, that's great. We'll dive into that. Uh, you know, honestly, I had a, a, a pretty good week. I had some frustrations with my bank, but I'm working them out. Mm. And uh, Never a good time. Fun. Yeah, just, you know, mysterious withdrawals and... Uh, See, like, I think it was a movie I heard once where it said playing with my money is like playing with my emotions, and I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Like, it really ticks me off when that kind of stuff happens, and you got to go in there and get it taken care of fast, otherwise you get stuck. And it, everything <clears throat> it takes so much time nowadays. Like, automated services just oh, yeah. suck up your time. Yep. I, I hate automatic payments. I do them, but I hate a lot of them because you get so complacent, and then all of a sudden one month it changes to this, one month it changes to that, you start looking back, you're like, what's up with my discount? And then you get into this whole argument with them, and then it's a hassle. So. I know. Everything starts going <clears throat> up. Yeah. Yeah. They always get you. Well, how, was, how was your week? It flew by at lightning speed, as usual. Um, but it was pretty good overall. I'd say it was uh, just fast, quick. There's so much going on, playing with the kids, going outside. But, like, you get in your routine, and it's like Monday to Friday is gone. And then, you know... Uh, it's definitely a ton of fun with the kids, and I think that, you know, when Courtney and I get some time uh, to do our own thing, too, it's just like, that goes that much faster, because it's so much few and far between, so. Yep. Yeah, just uh, looking forward to the weekend and doing some hanging out. Yeah, so this will be posted on uh, holiday, but uh, hopefully you guys are still checking us out. Maybe. Yeah, we're not going to labor on Labor Day for this. Yeah. Sorry. We'll post it on Labor Day, but... Uh, so you'll be laboring. Uh, yeah, I will be. But it will be... For the cause. Exactly. Worthy cause. Yeah, right. So, this week's topic. Yeah, you know, I'm going to be honest. This is uh, this is another one that has many a rabbit hole. Oh, man. Yeah. And there's a lot of great things that we could talk about related to. And it. horrible things. Well, great things in terms of things to cover, but a lot of them are horrible. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but... We've talked about it, and there could be chapter twos and threes and whatever else we may see. We'll just see how it goes. But I think we have a good, you know, story to tell for the first pass. Yeah, I mean, we're only going to try to cram <clears throat> 500 years into this, so yeah. no big deal. This will only be like a six-week podcast, so buckle up. So we're going to talk about mental health. Mental health uh, in America, especially mental health through history and mental health in politics. Yeah. So much. And I love... Can I'm going to steal your analogy? Yeah. We're going to be gliding our plane today, yeah. our show. Yeah. Allow us to be your captains. And we will be landing and coming back up from certain topics. Yep. We're going to cruise along with mental health as the, mass, <clears throat> the main topic, but then we're going to touch down yes. at different uh, things we really want to highlight and, and cover. And yeah, this is your co-captain speaking. Please make sure you're tray tables are in their upright position and you have your seatbelt fastened. Here we go. 
So uh, a couple things that led us to do this show or why we felt it was important. Uh, there are 45 million Americans suffering from mental illness, and that includes depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, PTSD, and that's in this country. Um, as of, I believe it was 2016, mm -hmm. or uh, 2015, excuse me. Now, the other statistic we found troubling is less than 40% of those people are getting treatment. Right. And, uh, you know, if this was like any other sickness or illness, and less than 40% of the country was getting treated for it, it would be an outrage. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very underappreciated, underfunded, under-researched, under-serviced community. Um, Over-stigmatized. Yeah. There's so many reasons for why uh, it's under-serviced, you know, and I think they, we're going to get into a lot of those specific issues and why we've gotten to the point we are today, how, you know, at points in the past we've probably done better than we are today. Now, one of the other big problems as we go through our histor uh, our historic journey, if you will, mm -hmm. is that what qualifies for mentally ill is changing. Yeah. Because, um... In terms of definition? Yeah, definition, qualifications. Yep. Along those lines. So, let's just start. You know, in the 1600s, uh, it was just community. Like, that's... We were communities, right? And uh, it's so terrible to quote this, but it's a good reference. Monty, Poth, Monty Python, they joke about the village idiot. Yeah. Like, there was an acceptance that there was just... Some people. Mentally crazy people in the communities. Right. They probably were treated more as crazy than... Yeah. And we're going to we're gonna clean up our words as we move into the... Yeah. <laughs> Don't know. take it as, as saying that mentally ill people are right. crazy. Yeah. We're yeah. just working with what we got here. Yep. So, uh, we're going to, 100 years, that was fast, right? Yeah. 100 years, we're in the 1700s, now we have uh, colonialism. Yep. And this <clears throat> includes the industrialization, and now we see the almshouse. Um, that's where, you know, poor slash mentally ill are taken and stuff. Okay, is and, that kind of like uh, a charity house? Uh, that would be very charitable. <laughs> oh, charitable definition, okay. Uh, yeah. Not so charitable. not a very pleasant place. No, and and what we're doing is we're also putting the mentally ill in prisons. We're locking them in cages, chaining <clears> them to the walls. And um, in 1809, we see um, this idea for a moral treatment, and this was introduced by Pinnell. Uh, it was a psychiatrist. Uh, and it was the idea was that the social environment as well as the biological influence could help change and cure uh, the mentally ill. Okay. And this would include, um, you know, um, well, <laughs> let's just go forward to 1812. And next, we have the next big breakthrough. And this was from Ben Rush. And Ben Rush, you know, found that, you know, these are not demons in us. The mentally ill are not uh, caused by demons. So they which... separated the religion from the science piece of it? Yeah, right. And he thought that some of the mental illness had to do with sensory overload, and uh, he would do things like bloodletting, mm. uh, purging. He had a trance chair where they would basically strap you to a chair and put a box over your head just to remove any yeah. sensory stimulus from wow. yourself. And uh, not great. So still very medieval-type solutions. Right, and again, um, if we have asylums at this point, they're 
few and far between, and they are, <clears throat> excuse me, not operating at capacity, which this is the one thing you're going to hear repeated, that every time we think we have enough treatment in place, we always find that it's not enough. Hmm. It's the one theme you're going to keep hearing here. Yep. So, uh, 1841, we have to talk about uh, Dorothea Dix. Yep. Dorothea Dix in mental health in America and asylums is um, huge. You can't... It would be a disservice to not mention her. So she's born in 1802 and dies in 1887. Spoilers. Um, but she founded or expanded more than 30 hospitals directly, more than 30 <coughs> mental hospitals for the treatment of mentally ill in states. Um, she was born in Maine well, to a Methodist pastor. Not a happy childhood. Moves to her aunt in Boston, who's very well-to-do. She actually starts a school in her aunt's house in 1821. 1831, she opens her own school in her own home, mm -hmm. and uh, 1836, she's suffering depression, going through about a depression, and she goes to England, <clears throat> takes a restorative trip. I love the way they say that to England. <laughs> that sounds nice. Yeah, sure. I got two kids. I could use a restorative trip. So she goes to England, where she stays with, do you know this name? William Rathbone. Yeah, it sounds uh, very familiar. Uh, it's in Fall of Giants. Okay. Yeah, he is in the House of Commons. He's a liberal, um, you know, liberal guy in the House of Commons. So, me and Brett read this book series by Ken Follett called, uh, is the whole series Fall of Giants? Or it's... Um, it's like the Century tr Trilogy, I think, is what the, yeah. the three books are called. Three books. It's historical <clears throat> fiction. First one is World War One, mm -hmm. uh, which is Fall of Giants. And then we have World War Two, which is... Oh, man. World Without It? No, that's the other series. Yeah. I don't remember offhand. And it's really good. Yeah. Don't don't let this... They're uh, all good. The, the, the fact that we can't remember... I mean, they've been out for a while. Yeah, and third and one is Winter of... Winter of the World. Winter of the World, which isn't George R. R. Martin, right? Man. <laughs> if we mix all this up, we're going to correct that in the comments and make sure that uh, people have access to this uh, book series if you're interested. But lots of good things in terms of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, details along with fictional characters. So a lot of historical facts, but characters interacting with those times and places and people. Brett and I do a lot of audiobooks. If you would ever like us to do audiobook reviews, we are all about that. Sure, definitely. <clears throat> Done a ton of them. Yeah, or if Love our them. shows are long enough, we just won't. <laughs> yeah, and if you don't like hearing our voices, and uh, that's okay too. We, we, don't, we won't read those books or talk about them. So... So, Dorothea Dix. Yeah, we've got to get back to that. So, she goes to England, she stays with William Rathbone, and she returns to Boston in 1837, shortly after the death of her grandma. Okay. <clears throat> now, the inheritance she gets from that ends up supporting her for the rest of her life and her causes. And in 1841, she's teaching a Sunday school class at the East Cambridge Jail for Women. Okay. And as she's leaving, she finds... Um, there's a cell with mentally ill women in there, and it has no heat. Wow. And uh, she goes to the warden and tells the warden, and the warden responds to her, lunatics can't tell the difference between hot and cold. <laughs> wow. And this was, <clears throat> I mean, not like one man's crazy beliefs. This was like... Accepted norm. Status quo right wow. now. So that right there changed history and uh dicks focused on the treatment of the mentally ill from then on after okay 
So it kind of drove her passion for taking care of these people the right way, or trying to figure out the right way. Correct. And she does the best she can. In 1843, Dix gives a petition to the Massachusetts legislature to pay for the expansion of the state of St. Asylum in Worcester. Okay. Now, in this time, women have, like, no rights. And so she can't even read it. She has sure. to get a man to read it. Yeah, right, represent her cause. Now, I really <clears throat> recommend that you go read this letter. It is beautifully written. I'm going to read one small section that is just a good summary of where we're at in 1843 with the mentally ill. With her cause. So, quoting, okay. <clears throat> I proceed, gentlemen, briefly to call your attention to the present state of insane persons confined within this commonwealth in cages, Closets, cellars, stalls, pens, chained, naked, beaten with rods, lashed into obedience. <clears throat> End quote. Terrible. And uh, it doesn't get much better, the letter, but it does draw more specific, um, more instances into better detail. So okay. it gives a better light if you're interested in that. Now, she was able to then expand the Worcester State Lunacy Hospital. Okay, and so that, that action did something for yes. the folks, good. And so then she takes her show on the road, man. She goes to Rhode Island, New York, then moves to the pro-slavery states in the South. In a three-year period, she travels 30,000 miles. Wow, that's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Especially for that time period. That's three oil changes. That's a lot of traveling, too. <laughs> I'm sure that that was not comfortable traveling. Right, to believe in something that much, to yeah. do it. Wow. And so one, I have one neat story about her. While she's in the southern states, she she's dealing with the governments, right? And she hears of a plan to overthrow the Union by blowing up some rail rail cars and then an assassination attempt on Lincoln. She mm -hmm. hears about this plan. So she goes and she tells <laughs> some high-ranking Union people who she knew in other states. Okay. They get the Pinkertons to go down and investigate, find out it's a credible clause. They pull Abe Lincoln out of the place the assassination was supposed to happen at, and they actually arrest the people and foil this plot. Jeez. So... So she already made a mark in history, just saving the president's saving life. Saving the president. And, and Mr. Lincoln, President Lincoln doesn't forget. And the so Civil War breaks out, and we have uh, Fort Sumter Falls, and uh, Dix volunteers to, you know, help for the cause. And Lincoln names her the superintendent of women nurse on June 10th, 1860. Hmm. Wow. Or, well, it wouldn't be, it'd be 1861. And Somewhere there. in there. So, yeah. uh, interesting other story with her, uh, Lincoln's gets his two youngest kids, they get tuberculosis from bad water lines uh, that go into the White House. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, Dorothea Dix comes and says, you want me to bring a nurse? And this is while the Civil War is going on. And Lincoln says, no, keep the nurses where they are. And he ends up losing his first son. Mm. And uh, Willie, Willie died. And after that, Dorothea Dix comes back, and Lincoln says, could you please send me a nurse? And he's, she sends this Rebecca Pomeroy, mm. and um, she took care of Todd. And then after Todd, yeah, he, he Tad, did, sorry. Tad, Tad didn't make it yeah. either, right? No, he made it. He did? Yeah, okay. and then she had to stay and kind of help Mary because she lost her son. Okay, wow. So, yeah. That's terrible. And so this is Dorothea Dix, and uh, she obviously didn't get along well with the doctors. Right, who were um, 
prescribing beatings and whatever else. Well, no, just in the war, like the war doctors oh, who were like, because being a nurse during the nurse and the, okay. yeah, they were basically they weren't nurses. Like she was never had medical training. She was a teacher, yeah. and she got to be the supervisor of all the nurses. Okay, yeah. So, but she was a smart. She was a smart woman. A uh, woman. And um, she used to sit with, like, dying soldiers. And the, she had she wrote this quote after holding a dying soldier's hand. This war with my country is breaking my heart. Yeah. Uh, mm. I think it's just always important to remind ourselves that we've, we've been at war with ourselves. Oh, yeah. And, and it's how, terrible. How good we have it and <laughs> yeah. to try to keep things versus letting things degrade. Now, um... She dies in 1887, Dorothea Dix. Mm -hmm. By the time of her death, there were 110 more mental health hospitals in the country than when she got into the cost in 1841. And uh, she actually died in one of the state hospitals she helped expand in New Jersey. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So she helped fund or helped... Uh, expand all these institutions and they in their first generation did a great job of getting the uh, mentally ill out of the prisons right she believed that the mentally ill and the um uh, the convicts uh, should not be living together sure seems logical seems logical something that we've kind of reverted on in present day but um by the 1870s, so towards the end of her life, there's a lot of scandals mm. that pop up in, um, in in the books or in the world. In 1860, um, there's a woman named Elizabeth Packard, and this is in Illinois, okay. not too far from us. Uh, in 1860, her husband has her committed, which is in accordance with the law, and this is because she has different religious views than him and disagrees with her, basically, and argues with him. Wow. And so uh, he was able to have her committed, and she was committed for three years. So to an asylum? In Jacksonville, a sane asylum in Illinois. Wow. And uh, she never admitted to being crazy, and her daughters pushed and pushed to, like, you know, petition to get her out. And finally, she was deemed uncurable, and then they let her out. <laughs> so they just give up. You're not curable, so here you go. Have her back. Yeah, dude. And so everyone kind of knows about this story, and they know that she goes on to write a book. Uh, and I and that's the part I know. She writes a tale about what it was like in the prison. To be in there. Yeah, it's a Man. best-selling book. It details, you know, beatings, chokings, forced ice water baths, and uh, just... So to what end? Are you going to beat the person back to be... Right. The asylum started off as a great way to get the mentally ill off the streets and stuff like that. And the idea was to build build a place for them um, and give them this, you know, nurture, nature therapy. Um, And Dorothea Dix had this idea that if you could catch someone's mental illness early on and get them into an asylum, in four to six months they would be cured. Hmm. And it would be like treating a common cold. And there's this great quote from a documentary I watched, and I'll link it to it. And uh, it says, after a while it became clear that they weren't getting better. Yeah. And so the people are overworked. There's no holidays, vacations. There's no nothing. These places become overcrowded. The funding is there, but it's not enough. And it starts to almost become like the prisons were. And... um, 
So Elizabeth Packard writes this book. So after she gets out, though, of three years in this uh, asylum, her husband locks her in a room and nails all the windows shut. She has to sneak a letter out of the slit in the window down to a friend who gets the letter to a judge, and the judge calls for a trial, and, uh, like, (laughs) she is found not crazy, not in, you know, any way unfit, and is ordered to, you know, not be locked in the room anymore. Wow. And so by the time she gets home, though, the husband had rented the house out to other tenants and taken her kids and moved to Boston. <laughs> moved to Massachusetts. Wow. And at this time in history, women had no rights to property. She couldn't do anything to get her kids back. Yeah. So in 1867, she goes and gets, uh, she petitions like congressmen in Illinois and passes the Bill for Protection of Personal Liberty, and it guaranteed all people accused of insanity had the right to a public trial. In 1869, she petitions Illinois and Massachusetts legislature to allow married women equal rights to property and custody of their children. Mm. So she gets a lot of credit for the book, but she did a lot more than that. Wow. And uh, so Dorothea Dix, Elizabeth Packard. Wow. These are important things. Major players. Yes, exactly. Uh, so let's talk about the treatment. Where where we're at now, at, at this point, they're doing things like shock therapy. They'll do things like insulin shock. They'll give you, like, too much insulin to make your body go into shock because wow. they believe it'll help restart your body. And these are, like, the precursors to um, electroshock therapy. You wonder how many people they killed doing that stuff. It got bad. And, and this is the thing. There are so many dark things very, very dark history that comes with this. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to go too much into that dark darkness. But one thing to talk about, in 1800s to 1970s, there were things called ugly laws. And it was illegal for diseased or maimed, deformed uh, people to be, uh, to be exposed themselves in public view. And this was caused to lock people up. And again, husbands could have their wives committed. Like, we were at a very not understanding place. At this point in history, you know, we're still in early 1800s, or I'm sorry, early 1900s. We are getting people in there with syphilis that have late stage of syphilis, and that causes dementia, Mm. and they couldn't do anything about it. So they, they would, and they would deal with people with that. They would deal with alcoholics, people who had addiction problems. They were dealing with people with brain tumors. They were dealing with, you know, schizophrenics, bipolars, and um, they just thought that this ice therapy, or they thought uh, because they found that in syphilis end stages, if they had a super high fever, they stopped um, appearing to be insane. (laughs) So they would start putting people in hot boxes to try to cause high fevers. Wow. Yeah, I mean, things are not great. We're Talk pretty about, much... Ex- like, the same as bloodletting, like, maybe it, slightly better. <laughs> exactly. And, wow. And this goes on, like, um, Huntington's disease, I guess, is, like, dementia. I feel bad this is not where the research took me, but mm. um, there were places where, in America, where doctors were just, like, cutting ribs out of people oh. and putting balloons in the lungs. Like, it was, again, they were playing around Just with people experiment who seeing. could not speak up for themselves, had no one to defend themselves or anything. Jeez. Um, 
the other absolutely horrible thing we're just going to kind of gloss over is eugenics. There was this idea that um, people needed to be sterilized so they couldn't spread this. And the law, if you look up the laws for this, it's defined very loosely. Mm. It's called like, um, uh, there's one in Virginia, the Virginia State one, it says basically imbeciles could be removed their like their genitalia could be removed so they couldn't procreate wow so just trying to call the herd kind of thing call the herd and and again they weren't like these these weren't real diagnoses like they were idiots imbeciles and i don't remember what the other one is and that's in the Probably legislature just throwing out slang and then that's you could just throw throw them under whichever term you want and then that's how you could could do whatever you wanted with it to them that's just terrible so uh <laughs> we have a mental uh, a mental hospital here in Peoria. Well, it was in Bartonville. Pretty yep. close to us. Yep. And, uh, sorry, we're in the United States. If anyone's listening outside the country, welcome. Uh, so let's talk about the Zeller treatment. We had Zellers, but first we had the Peoria State Mental Hospital. Okay. Um, Zeller is a interesting guy because he took over the Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville November 1st, 1902, and then later he had to move out when a Republican moved in, or when a Democrat governor came to office, he was removed, then put back in. But uh, he was ahead of his times. Mm -hmm. One of the first things he did when he took over the Peoria State Mental Hospital was he took the bars off the windows and made an animal enclosure. And the public and the patients could go look at animals and stuff like that. <laughs> he had a policy that the doors were kept open. There would be no solitude. He um, followed the cottage plan, which instead of people being locked up in one big building, there were tons of little buildings. Okay. He set up a barber and a hairdresser. Uh, I don't remember what's it called. A women hairdresser and okay. then a barber. Uh, he introduced music and dances. Huh. He It was the first state hospital in Illinois that had an eight-hour workday. Trying to bring some normality to it. Yeah. He removed all mechanical restraints. That is something that we don't do today in our hospitals. That's correct. And this man was doing it in 1902, huh. 1917. He removed all mechanical restraints. He put women workers in the male wards. Um, he was a good guy. I mean... Trying a lot of very progressive and... Banned narcotics to subdue the patients. Okay, so no, just put him to sleep. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, this guy was ahead of his time. When he retired, he spent the end of his days living on site. <laughs> they needed, like, didn't even move. Wow. You know? And he commissioned the sundial, and four sides of the base have uh, four different motto, or uh, uh, what would you call it? Sayings or like yeah, well, like uh, principles. Okay, and it was eight-hour labor, non-imprisonment, non-restraint, and non-resistance. Wow. And uh, so that place is shut down. Lost funding. Mm -hmm. You'll get into that. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So yeah, Zeller died, and uh, we were able to carry on his ideas for a little bit. Sadly, we don't use his teachings or anything anymore. And Zeller became internationally known people were coming to us or him <laughs> to learn his ways and he traveled the world to find out ways to better improve uh you know improve the mentally outcome i would say you know their lives. quality of life quality of life yeah i was exactly. gonna say there's not really like an outcome per se like a cure but it, 
in, in many instances. So, um, and this is just another thing that you know to point out. Institutions start off well, and just like a game of telephone, their founders' good intentions fall by the wayside. You know, it happened yeah. with Dorothea Dix and the asylums, and then by like 1902, we we start doing this whole um, cottage plan, which was like again making sprawling compounds to create more of a community life. Mm -hmm. And um, but treatment-wise, we're really not much better off in most places. We're still doing the ice baths and wow, terrible things. So uh, 19. 13, this is one thing interesting, counselors aren't really a thing yet, like, the first time we have counselors is in the early 1900s, Frank Parsons opens up the Bureau of Vocational Guidance in Boston, and it was the first time it kind of, like, took your personality into account for a job. And it's like the first time we have people looking at your personalities. Yep. And then in 1913, Clifford Beers opens the first mental health clinic in America. And he, he was also an advocate for a more humane treatment of those institutionalized. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> then as we get into the 50s and the 40s, really, um, we start to see... Uh, in the 40s, we start to see, like, the lobotomy, which, do we all know what the lobotomy Frontal is? Frontal lobotomy. Yeah, and... This is where you take part of your brain out, right? Well, not even take it out. They basically just scramble it. Um, like an egg? I mean, kind of. Um, Jeez. Yeah, man, it's not great. And, um, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> I know, basically. I'm over cringy because it's like, oh. So, uh, yeah, basically they would take and make incisions on the side, and they could go up through the nose too, I think. And they would go in, and they would start just cutting up and down with like a butter knife looking like tool or an ice pick. And it was supposed to fix people and make them less violent and stuff like that and a lot of this comes from a guy named Phineas Gage and this is like in 1840 you're going back a little bit Phineas yeah. Gage is a railroad worker yeah. gets smoked in the oh, head with yeah. a railroad tie Heard about that. Okay? Yeah. lives through the experience but he's different and this is like this awakening in the science community like holy moly what's going on in the brain personality is up here yeah you know like who we are is somewhere up here so and that was some of the ideas that led to the lobotomy the guy that created a lobotomy also got a uh, nobel peace prize <laughs> wow yeah the guy Talk that created the shock therapy twist. the insulin shock therapy pretty sure also he got a nobel oh. peace prize so, uh, so lucky to be alive now. So we go from the behavioral, uh, I hate to call it behavioral, we go from the nature therapy, the yeah, nurture therapy, yeah. okay. to, uh, oh, sorry, the moral treatment. That's okay. what it calls. Uh, kind of stay on task here. Moral treatment, and yeah. then we get into the shock treatments, and then we get the lobotomy. Yep. And again, like, we're doing this on all kinds of people. Don't Regardless of whatever the ailment is, like yep. si one size fits all for the treatments. Yep, and uh, yep, <laughs> and uh, in the forties, the VA actually uh, starts paying for the training of counselors and psychologists. Hmm. So this is okay. also kind of a step in the direction of mental health. Uh, in the fifties is when we start seeing the introduction of 
pharmacology, uh, if you will. Uh, the motto of the 50s, with chemistry, life is better. Okay. I found that. So this is where lithium thorazine gets created. And uh, the thing with lithium and thorazine is they do a really good job with their respective treatments. Uh, lithium for bipolar, thorazine for schizophrenia. Okay. And what happened was the media and the public got got wind of this, and it looked like a cure-all. And so all of a sudden, they're like, we fixed it. Mental health is no more. <laughs> and that's exactly the same thing they thought with the shock treatment, the same thing they shot... Same thing Dorothea Dix thought with the whole uh, moral treatment, and then same like everyone always thought when they found something new, it was like we got it, yep, you know, fixed it all. And <clears throat> also in this time in the fifties is with the rise of antibiotics, so now we're able to treat syphilis. So now you have to think the population, the institutions are changing a little bit yeah. because we're able to cure the syphilis. And Some of like the, I guess, other issues, like not just the mental health issue, but the other health problems these people would have. Exactly. Right. And and and, and the 50s is also the rise of uh, Freud and this whole idea of like behavioral health starts mm. to emerge. And lots of people from the private practice leave and go start their own, own private sector businesses because now they can open up their little clinic, get the people lay on the couch, talk about their moms, <laughs> you know, and, like, make the big bucks not working in these terrible asylums that okay. are underpaid, over-crammed over with people and Worked, stuff. Yeah. So this only added to a, you know, work shortage along the state hospitals and in, in the national mental health hospitals. Yep. Uh, another... Another drug that came out along these times was... What's it called? Uh... Meprobamol? Nope. What is it? <laughs> well, it's not Meprobambam, is it now, Chris? <laughs> so, uh, big shout out to Chelsea Sage, who helped us do a lot of research for this week's show. And uh, she really tried to help me write down this word. I think it's uh, Meprobamatrol. Sure. Meprobamol. I can't read your writing the last part, but I think that's yep. what it's called. I so that, that M word right there. So anyways, uh, this was called the peace pill. Peace, man. <laughs> yeah, peace, man. And uh, this was the, out of one, every one out of three prescriptions was for this drug. Wow. Everybody's getting this stuff. Jeez. You know, like taking, taking the peace pill. Man. And this was the number one selling pill until 1963 when... Valium is introduced, and then Valium becomes the number one selling pill from 1963 to 1982. Wow. What are you doing, baby boomers? How many pills? What are you doing? Taking those pills. Taking man. those pills. So, uh, okay, so in the 50s, again, all these medicines get introduced, and they begin get hailed as this. The we, cures. We fixed it. Yep, the fixes for we it. We did it. Yep. And, uh, again, at the same time, we're doing terrible things to, like, eugenics. We're still caging people. We're still restraining people in other places. We have lost what Zeller had done already yeah. by the 50s. Yep. It seems like the first generation of goodness cannot pass that on to the second, and they sure as hell can't get it to the third. Sure. And uh, I don't get that, but that's repeating. Now, um, one thing that happened in America was, you know, not in America, but when our soldiers came back from World War II, 
uh, a lot of them experience shell shock. Yep. And that was the term for PTSD of the time. And that really changed the public's view on mental health on a scale that really hadn't been seen mm-hmm. set, uh, seen yet. And because so many people we knew were... Or soldiers. Yeah. Not we knew. Yep. But. Varying levels of stress and things that we would probably call PTSD today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so again, not just one ailment that really one size fits all kind of cure would, would deal with. Yep. And so um, in 1963, there, uh, the Community Mental Health Act. Is passed and has authorized funding for the development of research centers in university-affiliated facilities mm-hmm. for people with mental retardation. And it was the first federal law directed to help people with developmental disabilities. Wow. 1963. This was Kennedy. Yep. And uh, I don't know if people know this, but Kennedy had a, a sister. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I think that there was a family member who had something. Ro- yeah, her name was Rosemary Kennedy, and, um, you know... Just reading about her, it, it doesn't sound like she was necessarily mentally disabled as a f- very, very free spirit. Sure. She would, like, sneak out of school. The nuns thought she was, like, being promiscuous. She got kicked out of a school and sent to another. Yeah. And when she was 23 years old, her doctor, uh, or the family doctor, recommended to the dad that a lobotomy might be the way to go to fix it. And so the dad snuck her out of the house, and they performed a lobotomy. They did the incision, and they started slicing with the butter knife utensil, and they'd have her do things like recite the Lord's Prayer. And if she would start to not be able to get it out, they would stop cutting. And that was their... Test. That was their test. Wow. And so she couldn't even walk out after the procedure. And she had to spend, they sent her to a uh, care facility in Wisconsin after a while. And the, the family didn't know what happened. The family was told for the longest time that she was made mentally retarded. Dad didn't admit it. And um, it was when the dad died that the siblings were made aware of where she was and tried to bring her back into their life a little bit more. And by this time, she had gained the ability to speak clearly again and she was able to walk but she had a limp but uh that is just terrible like my god yeah so um kennedy did a lot for mental health he he was massively affected by that of course and yeah uh this wasn't made announced to the public until after kennedy was president Hmm. so because uh stuff like that didn't get out like it does today no when he was running for senate they started asking questions, and they said that she was, you know, mentally... Uh, she, they said she was reclusive. Mm, that was okay. their excuse for a while. <laughs> so Kennedy called for a reduction. Can I do a Kennedy impression? Sure, go for it. <clears throat> Although a number of years by hundreds of thousands of people confined to residential institutions and asked that methods be found to retain and return to the community the mentally ill there to restore and revitalize their lives through the health programs and strengthened education and rehabilitation services. Wow. Bravo, sir. Thank you. I watched Way him better do that than I could possibly do. Several, several times. <laughs> so basically, he wanted to, uh, 
he basically he wanted to deinstitutionalize people, and that is what the Community Mental Health Act is better well known for is deinstitutionalization. Yeah, which is such a big word. Yeah, so that was uh, the start of it. Yes, it was. And in the 60s, other humanistic theories emerged, and they helped provide the framework for the view of mankind's existence from a holistic approach. And this helps distinguish psychologist from psychiatrist, because hmm. these are two very different things. Psychiatrists are doctors. Uh, they go through the medical school and then are studying brain behavior where psychiatrists are more focused on the behavioral side. And I am doing a terrible job explaining that. I apologize. So yeah. We're uh, not going to claim to be experts on any of this. Nope. <laughs> this is yep. research and thoughts and all that. Now, uh, <clears throat> 1976, the American Mental Health Counselor Association is formed. And um, this helps substantiate and differentiate the mental health counselors as its own valid field and profession. Mm -hmm. So, again, counselors aren't really a thing. You know what else really isn't a thing up until, like, the 60s or 70s? Hmm. Um, like, retirement homes and nursing homes. Right. Like, it's not good. There wasn't service the service industry like we have it today at all. And, and a lot of those folks were... they were right away in their home or being taken care of by family and or going on the street. Yep. And what's scary is today even dementia is still something that'll get you removed from your nursing home and I mean if you're removed so many times you'll get sent to a state facility. Right. And they, that's that's our grandparents, our parents get locked away. Yep. To rot away. And um we just we're better, we do better than we did, but it's they're not great. We're still not great. Right. The the perf the solutions are just they're very, very, very incrementally improving. In nineteen seventy six, uh, Virginia becomes the first state to offer counselors to seek a license. Wow. So I mean <clears throat> this is all up to nineteen seventy six. Yep. And I'm gonna pass I'm going to try not to drop the baton. Yeah, the one thing I want to say before I, I'm going to cue you up a little bit yeah. is, is Kennedy, uh, his idea, if my accent ruined it for you, Kennedy's idea was that we needed to get people out of the institutions. We needed to get them into the community. Yep. And um, Instead of the state-run institutions like local community. Yes, yes, yep. Okay. And, um, and that was a good idea but it, it assumed that the communities or the states were going to be ready to pick that up. Yep. And um, even and that's and this is they had money and it still wasn't enough and uh, yep. So when you get into the 80s, you know, I, I was just looking I read a, a neat paper called Mental Health and Societal Policy. Hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll link that so we can... It was published in 1985, so not the end of the 80s, but I think it gives a really good perspective, and reading some other <clears throat> folks' material on this time frame, I think it pretty much summarizes what the 80s was like. And like Chris was saying, you know, the they had uh, money, you know, funds to support these state institutions. They were trying to drive more of it to the community level. 
but the provision of service really was complicated by the fact that the funding was all jacked up. Yep. You know, to a large extent, um, costs got shifted all the time between different levels of government because. One didn't want to have the burden anymore, so they'd move the money to another, but it wasn't as much as what was had before, so they were playing the budget game, <clears throat> right? So the money was there, but what it was going toward and, and how much for the right things was just all kinds of mucked up. Um, <clears throat> there was not really any kind of unified adherence uh, to a way to provide with the resources, especially to the, the chronically ill population, which mm. is something you were alluding to earlier. You know, a lot of the stuff does not have... I don't know what you would call a cure, an end in sight, really. It's it's something you manage, hopefully, yeah. um, you know, and you find a way to, to live. Mm-hmm. But it's it's never, and so I think that would, I would classify that as being chronically ill. <clears throat> and so what I was finding in my research is most of the state funding is going um, to state hospitals that really focus on a minority of the total population that have mental illness or things you would classify as some kind of mental illness or thing that you would need support for. Sure. Um, so without that, <clears throat> you've got the majority of folks, all the money's going to these institutions, and it's not even serving the majority of the people out there. Um, and so... It's an echoing problem. <laughs> yeah, I know. It just keeps going on, and I think it's really just the fact that um, there was not a major F effort to centralize it to organize it, right, and to make sure that there was some kind of like standard way of learning and disseminating the knowledge, right? I, it just you're, yeah, because I mean, it, if <laughs> the whole uh, Elizabeth Packard was in 1860, and that was your husband could have a wife committed for arguing with her mm-hmm. and for hysteria, which wasn't even a real thing. I right. mean. There is a massive stigma still up yeah. until this point in history. Yeah. And, I mean, the stigma, I think, has, even up into where I'm talking in the 80s, is yeah. still massively there. Massively there. And people don't want to see counselors. Right. And so, yeah, even if the resources are available, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to admit it. This generation, I remember my grandfather, you know, my grandmother, these were not folks that just sat there and poured their heart out and, like, all their feelings deep down inside. And I think largely that may have been what contributed to the problems that they were experiencing. But at the same time, yeah. they went through a lot, whether it be poverty, whether it be war, whether it be two whatever. Yeah, yeah two, I mean, yeah. It, it just a lot went on at that time. You know, so in the 80s, you've got this finance issue that just kind of bleeds through all the the problems that they're having. Um, you know, and there was a lot of resistance to closing obsolete institutions like what you were referencing, um, you know, and, and, and instead of having those in those state institutions spending that money in the community, little little um, more type residences in each, each community so they had a support structure there with more of their family. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that idea per, is kind of pervasive in this. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, I was reading that in the 80s, the number of, of uh, patients residing in mental hospitals and their stay in mental hospitals was declining, mm. okay, overall. But the number of, of admissions for mental illness in general hospitals and their length of stay was going up. So leaving the mental institutions and starting to fill into the general hospitals and, and centers out there. Right? Arguably less equipped. Right. Definitely less equipped. You know, yeah. there's training, there's resources, but especially in this time frame, there really was no focus to deliver that. <clears throat> and then to compound that, 
the other massive thing that you had uh, playing a, a role in the 80s was, and it's, I'm sure it still is the case, there was a, a big disparity in the level of care between those that were insured and those who were not insured, right? The people that are insured get, you know, the best care, the uh, right amount of care, and very specific to what their problem is. Mm-hmm. The people that <clears throat> are uninsured get a pamphlet you know, saying, hey, here's the resources we can provide to you and the minimal uh, amount of care to get you out the door, especially in the general hospital care setting and we're in, in, the in, 80s. in this time frame. Yeah, so <clears throat> insurance isn't even covering um, your counsel. If you have to go see a counselor, that's not covered. Correct. And I'm talking about the hospital stay side of this, right? Sure. Where you would get, the, you know, especially in the general hospital this time, you're not going to get a lot of information. So like you're saying, so <clears throat> say you are part of the insured population, your hospital stays taken care of. You can't go to a counselor and get that taken care of. That's yeah. out of pocket. Out of pocket. And so there was no thought that that should be an available resource to people, right? Because it wasn't even uh, thought that it should be part of in the uh, uh, the healthcare system. That's just so for, wild. For insurance. Yeah. <clears throat> and <laughs> it's just amazing to me that this has been an issue in this country, a notable issue. Mm-hmm. For well, Kennedy years. in the '60s, like you said, in '63, signed uh, the Community Mental Health Act, <clears throat> and that was kind of what you you know sparked things off from federal level support. So I I didn't mention this <clears throat> on Dorothea Dix. Excuse me. So I'm going to do it real quick. 1853, Dorothea Dix took her federal uh, her case federal to the federal government, mm. and she proposed yep. an idea <clears throat> of putting millions of acres of public lands in a trust. And that the income from those, that trust would go to helping the mentally ill. Yep. And this is in 1853. It passes both the House and the Senate. It gets vetoed by Franklin Pierce. Yeah. Come on. Like, I know. And then There's Kennedy. A chance. Yeah, and then literally, that's 1853. Yep. Then we get to Kennedy. 90 years later. Right. <clears throat> and there's really not a whole bunch yeah, so after of 63, good things. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm in the 80s, right? Yep. And then in 1980, uh, Jimmy Carter launched a study. Um, basically, uh, try to find what he put in place here. The President's Commission on Mental Health. And basically from that, there were recommendations uh, for what needed to be done to prop up the mental health care system um, within the communities across America. So basically, Jimmy... Uh, I love that name. Jimmy? Jimmy, peanut farmer. Oh, yeah. I love that, too. Mm-hmm. He's a farmer. So Jimmy, the peanut farmer, had uh, helped to ensure the passage of the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980, which sought greater integration of programs for people with serious mental illness. Yep. Um, that was really the focus of it, um, You know, providing grants to community health care centers. Um, and following that 78 President's Commission, um, so that they could improve the health care, right? So the Reagan administration comes in and almost immediately... Came in like a wrecking ball. 1981, yep. They come in like a wrecking ball and repealed practically every bit of um, that Mental Health Systems Act that was part of the funding. I, I think it was like $800 million that the Carter administration had, uh, had earmarked over four years, and yep. I think most of that was wiped out. Um, now... Basically, the Reagan administration's take was they were going to push that responsibility onto the states. They wanted the states to take the burden and uh, to set up, you know, and, the and now we're talking infrastructure. About the, now, unlike Kennedy, we're not talking about the 
Now mm. we're talking about the financial burden. Right. Like, just offloading. Before it was the organizational level, yep. the care, the treatment. Yep. Now we're talking about, okay, now that you do that, now pay for it too. Now we're taking away the money. Yep. Um, and so, you know, you had that massive deinstitutionalization that went on through the 70s and into the 80s, you know, <laughs> and so you're depending upon the communities to organize all this, but, you know, they weren't ready to, to take all that on, you know, and so you, you have these massive issues where there's, there's rampant homelessness, yes. the overcrowding of the facilities. So Chelsea is a, was a, used to be a psychiatric nurse, now she's a nurse educator, and um, some of the people she worked with used to work at the uh, Zellers, uh, I guess it was a mental hospital, mm -hmm. and um, they said when this happened, they, you know, they had to go to work from there at the hospital, you know, a place that had, you know, many beds to a place that had, like, very few beds at the general hospital, and they said the saddest thing was on their way to work, they would stall to see their former patients just on the streets. They were just homeless. We literally did nothing for these people. We yeah. kicked them out yeah. and made them homeless. Well, it's not only enough where if you don't have any money, right, to have mental problems, and then you have... You're poor, right? Yeah. You can't afford any kind of health care. And so, you know, I think I, I was reading that some commentators in the media just refer to this as the crazy on the streets, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're at this time, there were some reasonably effective anti-psychotic mm -hmm. and antidepressant medications. But, you know, many of them had serious side effects and patients just didn't want to take them, yep. you know. And so in place of that, you had them taking street drugs and and, and you know, doing al drinking alcohol, um, you know, and so that along with their issues kind of just pro proliferated more yep. and more problem on the street and across these institutions that are just packed, yep. the ones that were open and available to people. Um, so I think really that kind of sums up the 80s. We want to shift into, unless you have anything else to add to that, I kind of want to shift into the 90s and talk about the... Uh, uh, what do they call it? The decade of the brain. H.W. Uh, Bush, so not W, but H.W. Um, he basically proclaimed the 1990s as the decade of the brain to focus attention on the neurosciences and the benefits of brain research to <clears throat> basically uh, figure out, like you said, they, they way earlier had figured out that this was a part of the brain, something that was going on in folks' heads. Um, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, major focus on that and in, in the biological factors of mental health. Yeah. And so, um, you know, basically so, so far that we've talked about using medication, um, psychotherapy, um, cognitive therapy, Freudian and uh, psychodynamic emphasis that were in the past. Um, so, you know, we're talking about now getting into um, Prozac, right, and using other kind of I'm not even going to use these fancy science terms in my notes here, but different kinds of types of inhibitors to really affect the brain yeah. using through this research. One thing I'd like to yeah, point please, out go right for there it. is everything you listed like doesn't include like of course they don't include syphilis on there anymore. Like no. the the definition or the group that are right. like people with brain tumors are not on this list anymore. Yep. Like we are narrowing the scope of what mentally ill is. It's focusing on depression. I mean, largely with within this time yeah. frame. Right. And I would say that you know we'll get into more of today, but I you know it, 
I think it's interesting that as things we can understand or treat, um, as we understood them, it makes sense that they were not classified as mental illness anymore, but mm-hmm. I, I just think there's something to be said about that. Like, mental illness is something we still greatly don't understand. There could be spectrums that we don't even know exist yet that people could be on. Well, and that's just it. I mean, it, you get into things that are not mental illness in the sense of, like, um, inability to function um you know because you can't comprehend but like autism talk about a spectrum of, of different things i mean right you have everything from folks that are completely functional they just you know have some things about them that they struggle with yeah to folks that really can't function without some sort of assistance yeah you know and i think that again autism wasn't even a thing that was hardly discussed when we were kids mm-hmm. and we're not that yeah. old no you know? You know, I watched this documentary uh, all about the asylums. I So I have to throw this out there. I wanted to rent this documentary, mm-hmm. and so I, I looked it up. I can't really rent it. You, I got it from ICC, local community college, GA. And, uh, but to buy it, it was $126. Wow. For a one-hour documentary. Don't want to share that knowledge with the masses, I guess. Yeah. I mean, wow, that's on. crazy. 126 that, bucks? For, yeah, for an hour-long DVD. printed on gold? It was not great. I don't. I do not believe it was gold. Wow. No, I do not. But anyways, I found uh, found a copy <clears throat> local community college, which was awesome. Cool. And so yay, go searching. And um, this guy talks about how he was part of the whole deinstitutionalization yep. in the eighties. Yep. So much as when they documentary, and he said, you know, do I feel bad that it led to so many people being on the streets? Obviously, yes, that wasn't the intention, but. Some of the things they suffered, they were going to suffer in the institutions they were in anyways. So no one would have saw it if they would have been in the institutions. Hmm. And and I like that theory, but the problem is we see it now. We're still not doing a whole bunch about it. Yep. So yep. Lots of people like to talk about it, just not put it into practice. California staggering numbers of homeless people and... You can extrapolate from that that a large number of those people are mentally ill. And the fact of the matter is there's always going to be people incapable of functioning in society. Yeah. And what do we do? We, we have to have asylums. We have to have those things. Yeah. Well, at least some sort of institution to help provide support. Yeah. You know? So, <clears throat> I was... <clears throat> pardon me. I was talking about, you know, Prozac and yes, more and drugs getting, you know, dumped out there in the market... And so <clears throat> that's focused on depression treatment, right? Um, you know, and, and so although they're not really a lot more effective than prior antidepressants, they were more acceptable to patients because of the side effects, you know, um, that there was lesser sure. side effects. And so it kind of in, increased that uh, usage by like threefold, mm-hmm. right? And so you have more uh, primary care physicians uh, prescribing it more often for depression and anxiety. Um, even though it may be contrary to certain practice standards. So you get more and more proliferation, kind of like the opioid <gasps> epidemic thing that we've been talking about, right? Um, and so this uh, heavy use in pre- prescription kind of sort of, uh, not kind of, it did drive, um, you know, the the pharmaceutical industry. They they aggressively marketed. I, mean, I remember being a kid and you probably commercials. see Prozac commercials. Yeah, Yeah. what was it, the cloud or a little... Yeah, I, you know, I... I 
Do you not enjoy the things you used to enjoy? There were, like, different iterations of that sucker. And, you know, Does I think... Does pizza not taste good anymore? I think that was right in the era when they, they started, like, uh, ask your doctor about... Right. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You know, and, and be on the lookout and let your doctor know if you experience whoa, all these yeah. symptoms and whatever else. It's just like, you don't need, that's what the doctor's there for, to tell you what you need to take care of you. Not you sit there and say, hey, doc, I think I, I need some. I saw this do- commercial. Yeah. Let the, that told me all the symptoms. Let the people selling the drugs tell me what I need to take. Yeah. Right. I'm going to self-diagnose myself. Um, you know, so I talked about a lot more usage of the drugs um, that were being pres- prescribed, but adherence really was still a problem. And I think that <clears throat> um, medication costs were, you know, part of that too. If you don't have a lot of the resources, you know, if you if you're struggling with mental illness and you, you know, don't have a very high paying job or can only do certain tasks, you know, if the medication costs are high, you're gonna pay for food and a place to stay before you do your medicine, and you might not take it as often as you should. And we're still not covering counseling or. Other right. behavioral. Right. I'm. I'm just strictly talking about, you know, medicine and and uh, I guess uh, standard supported uh, things on your health. You know, your insurance. Yeah. Not things that are add-ons. You know, that you might get lucky if they're covered. Even today. Um, so another thing that happened in the '90s kind of became dominant was the uh, uh, impact of managed behavioral health care. So a lot of these larger institutions sort of. They try to they, they they brought together case management. Yep. Um, where uh, basically they started to standardize things more with how things were delivered. Um, uh, not entirely, but just managing more of a personal case by case basis. Hmm. Um, the it wasn't completely uh, a noble cause. You know, there were there were certainly some. Um, uh, impacts to this that were positive for the hospitals, right? Reduced length of stay because you're you're kind of like becoming a machine. You're churning and burning with those people coming in and figuring out what's wrong with them and getting them out. Um, you know, so they were able to reduce the cost that they had to to um, uh, incur for processing those patients. They also uh, found that when they had case management, they were able to reduce the number of psychiatrists and psychologists on staff and shift those two more case management type resources and support yeah. staff. So another, you know, bad thing, they're spreading the doctors more thin and so they're not able to provide the same level of care for those patients that, that they had, you know. It's kind of like what you experience in your primary care physician today with insurance providers. Hey, you get 15 minutes of these people, get these things done and get the hell out of there, yeah. on to the next one. Um, you have a, you know, a massive caseload. So, you know, I think that, again, the it, it just sort of, proliferated you know that trend of we're kind of stagnating we're not making any massive progress toward you know we are making little incremental bits here but yeah. never that you know that, that silver bolt that just kind of gets us the right level of care especially for the chronically ill yeah <clears throat> i've been talking a lot of, you know if you, I, I'm, gonna, can I'm gonna ask a question yeah. since we're there we're, go for it you know yeah. do you i mean i i think the issue is that there is no silver bullet well, yeah, there's no perfect solution, at least in all cases. And this is this is the problem. It is this is a huge topic where it's not one there's no one cure to fix all mental illness. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get people to focus on big issues. Well, and complex issues. With the kind of support <clears throat> cuz it's money, but it's in it's um 
I was listening to that documentary you sent me about how um, even if you know we had the money to have all the institutions and everything else we need, um, there's not enough providers. Like the uh, mental health providers, there's I think a very small fraction of those compared to everybody else, like in a general healthcare. Yeah. You know, like ear, nose, and throat, and all the other specialties. There's so many uh, fewer proportionate to the patient loads that even if we could have all these places for people to go, there wouldn't be enough to take people to take care of. So there's like an infrastructure issue with that. That's Facilities aren't yeah. there. Um, it's just a much wider issue. Um, you know, so they, when you talk about the challenges ahead, <clears throat> you know, getting into the 2000s, and I mean, I, I'm talking about, I think of that as the present still. I mean, the 2000s, yeah. you know, uh, I kind of missed some things that happened in the 90s in terms of legislation. Let me kind of take a step back here. So we talked about um, the decade of the brain from George Bush. Yep. He um, signed the Americas with Disabilities Act. Yep. Um, you know, so that helped to provide, uh, it prohibited discrimination against folks with disabilities, including mental illness. So that was a good step in the right direction there. Yep. Um, <clears throat> Bill Clinton uh, signed uh, the Mental Health Parity Act to begin addressing disparities in coverage for mental illness. So not exactly, we'll get into something else later yeah. that kind of that up. took it across the finish line Ish. that was kind of the start of it yeah, yeah. well i'm you know what i mean in yeah. terms of that part of it yeah um george w mm -hmm. uh did a a uh, freedom commission on mental health mm -hmm. and basically that brought about some recommendations especially related to um young children yeah and the youth um living with, with mental illness trying to provide better outcomes earlier on uh, once things are diagnosed. Um, he also uh, signed the Mentally Ill Offender Treatment and Crime Reduction Act, which basically provided resources to uh, communities to provide alternatives to incarceration. Sure. So instead of locking people up, um, you know, and, and trying to, uh, um, you know, address that with treatment and different facilities um, and look at the different kinds of types of medical conditions that people had. Um, and then getting into... Um, you know, 2010 and beyond, you know, more of today, even though we're right up against 2020 next year, which is crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, President Obama signed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which extended federal mental health, uh, health parity to Medicaid-managed plans um, and to qualified health plans that offered through insurance place marketplaces and exchanges. So taking, expanding what Clinton had put in place to specific, uh, specifically across the industry. Yeah. Now, not to say it's perfect because there's a lot of loopholes I was hearing about that companies can still kind of play with this and how they code things with their right. Cause uh, it, appointments. It, Go ahead. It assured that, uh, yeah, equal coverage. Of, equal coverage available. Right. And, right. But that means you could now go see a counselor. Right, a lot more of the stuff that would have been add-ons before is yeah. provided. Not everything depends so, on your plan. The biggest complaint I have with this is how often do you go see your regular doctor? Maybe once a year. Yeah, hopefully yeah. once a year. And you might go to a counselor once a week. And why would you think the copay should be equal? Well, and that's just it. I mean, you're gonna rack up however much that is per week uh, over the course of a year. Yeah. Right. So fifty-two weeks. 
you could be five hundred dollars, it's ten bucks or more, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's a lot of money for the the, the support you need on an ongoing basis, and it's know? gonna be and it's, it's preventative to a certain extent. You could argue that. And how yes, and how are low income families gonna afford this? Yeah. And, and the you know, especially for those folks that are living with. Um, you know, on on the poverty line or don't have a ton of resources, again, you're going to choose to pay for daycare and gas for your car and everything else you need before you're taking care of yourself a lot of times. Yeah, but you wouldn't do that with your broken arm. No, 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 because you couldn't work. Right. And I think that people somehow feel like they don't have... And that, again, it's stigma. It's it's people uh, feeling ashamed, you know? And I, I, I'm going to throw out this other one, which I, I don't need to add to the fire, but... I think the other thing is too is the mistrust. I mean, I think people understand that we don't we don't know exactly what's going on yet. Yeah. Well, and you go talk to your provider and talk about what you need, and then are they judging me? Yeah. You know, and and how you know am I going to get what I need out of this? So I if think that's a good point. You're a hunter. You're worried about them taking your guns. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know? certainly you don't want to be felt like people are worried about your mental stability because you certainly won't have any of that. And I mean. To a certain extent, rightfully so. If you are mentally instable, in, uh, unstable, yeah. I don't necessarily want you having a you know fifty guns in your house. That's a lot of guns anyway. But I'm just saying. I think that right. to a certain <laughs> right. extent, we gotta we gotta be reasonable. Like seriously, if if for some reason I was mentally impaired, I would definitely want someone to take the access to my weapons away from me. Yep. that's for sure. I got you, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> yep. Make sure Courtney gets that away from me. Yep. Um. So, I've been kind of leading up to where we're at today, uh, and I think it's important to state that uh, right now our jails really are housing the large majority of the mental mentally ill out there. They're winding up in jails and prisons. There are still state institutions, of course, that are you know housing housing folks. Um, there are local community institutions too that are yep. working with folks and trying uh, more progressive. Um, uh, treatments. Now, one thing I would say, the current administration is certainly uh, saying a lot of good things in terms of wanting to provide support, maybe not for necessarily the right reasons, you know, yeah. especially with, uh, you know, mass shootings, pointing the finger at, at mental health as the culprit. I think the st- statistics really speak for themselves that the mentally ill are largely non-violent in terms of extreme violence like that. Not to say it doesn't happen. I, I hear you. And I just, I get frustrated because, gosh, I read both sides of, like, the subjects now. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you gosh, you hear complaints on both sides. Like, Trump's talking about doing red flag. Yep. You know. Laws. Laws, yeah. thank you. And the... The Democrats are saying, "Well, this—he's going to use this to take advantage of the mentally ill." There's a cricket outside. Yeah, I wish you could hear it because that is the sound yeah. <laughs> I think best exemplifies my thoughts on that. It's yeah. it, uh, where. That's pretty ridiculous. It is, and there needs to be a. Uh, and the other side too is they're they're saying that well no you can't and then, you can't have any of these more laws to do that you'll take away my guns it's yeah like, if you have a red flag I want your guns taken away yes if you can't fly in an airplane you should damn well not have and, your guns and the Democrats just are arguing that red flags are are unless they're properly defined yeah and stuff like that which it's like come on people we need to take some steps in the right direction on that for sure yes. that was a whole other 
podcast that I hope everyone goes back and listens to. A lot of good material on that. Um, but the current administration, you know, they're, they're, they're calling for a lot of mental health care reform, particularly after mass shootings, which, you know, that's not the right venue or uh, topic to segue into when it comes to a mass shooting. Mental health care is its own thing that needs to be dealt with. Yeah. Um, and it is a broken system still to the many in many regards. There's a lot of great um, progress that's been made. but So the administration is saying, hey, we want to do health care reform, but um, we're going to continually seek to cut support for mental health care through the Medicaid budget, right? Kind uh, of. Been going after that. Yep. Um, adding work requirements to obtain Medicaid support, which if you have, and basically adding those requirements means you have to, to work harder to get your exemptions if yeah. you can't work. And so that means more folks are going to not be have access, and for sure, they're not going to have access to health care because they're going to fall into this gray area and not get the right exemptions and get their Medicaid coverage. Uh, and people are going to be pushed to, uh, so the administration has been pushing to enhance short-term limited duration plans. So the plan with the Obama administration through the Affordable Health Care uh, Act <clears throat> would be that there would be short-term plans, limited duration uh, health care coverage plans available, but they were meant to be that, short duration, yeah. six months to get you by before uh, or until you could get a longer-term stable plan in place. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration has been pushing these short-term plans and extending the amount of time people can remain on these and they are cheaper but they don't and that by doing that they're undermining the population that is a part of the the full-blown health care exchanges so less people there yeah. raising those premium costs right and so more people stay on the cheaper plans but the cheaper plans don't cover anything beyond basic health care so no mental health care support whatsoever is part of those at all um, so if you go to Wow. The doctor, go to yeah. a counselor, go to anything, acupuncture, that's not covered. That's straight out of pocket. Last thing, and then I'll let you talk. No, I don't have anything. I'm just blown away. <laughs> Overall, the administration, the big, the icing on the cake is they're hell-bent. It's oh, on yeah. the back burner now, but they want to repeal the Affordable Health Care Act. Yeah. So if you do that, then you're, you're cutting millions off of the entire network. I'm not being objective here, but I, I'm throwing this out there. My fear with Trump is he's done so little to divest himself from his interest. His tax cuts benefited the 1% more, and the corporation aspect is anything that stayed around. What is he going to do when he doesn't have to worry about getting reelected? Well, that's what we'll, I we've heard uh, recent reports that he's telling... As soon as I get reelected, go ahead, confiscate uh, land for the wall building. I will pardon you when yeah. you when they go after you. Um, and then, yep, we're gonna then we're also gonna cut uh, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Yep, massive cuts to their budget. Now, <clears throat> of course, that's speculation. Haven't heard it from his own lips. But given his record on, I promised this and then delivered that. I would not be surprised. That's my fear. I that is my honest. Yeah. That is my biggest fear besides the Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, let's let's wrap up the topic and yep. do a couple news things. Yep. Um, so mental health from the 1600s to Trump. Here's and where we are. 
hour and 15 minutes. I can see the clock. Yep, and we got some, we have a long way to go, folks. We have made some great strides. Um, there's so much we didn't talk about. Yeah, well, there's there's probably going to have to be a chapter two on this, on a couple different things. Um, thank you very much to Chelsea. Yeah. For providing a lot of insight. Almost got to be a guest. This close. Yeah, we'll work up to it. Yep. Got to get her uh, on here and have uh, have her give us her thoughts. Super. Yep. She, she's got some good stuff, and she's hilarious, too, so I think yeah. she'd be good to have on here. I sure like her. Uh, what about, uh, you want to, are you good with next week's topic, we announcing? Yeah, let's do it. So, I think next week, we're going to piggyback off this one a little bit, and we're going to talk about Big Pharma. Yep. We hear a lot about it. Um, Tons to unpack there. It'll be really good. I have so many opinions. I do, too. I do too. And it'll still tie into the mental health. And we're going to unload some things that we're positive you don't know. That's the truth of it. Uh, so tune in next week for that. Now, a couple things I wanted to say. Uh, this show's going to go up on Monday. Uh, that's when Hurricane uh, Dorian is yep. supposed to make landfall on the southeast coast. Yep. And they're talking like 130 to 140 mile per hour winds. Sustained winds is like a Category 4. Category 4. This is a huge storm that's heading for Florida. It's going to hit the Bahamas I am so sad by that. I love going to Florida. Yeah, I hope you guys in the Bahamas are okay. I hope... Everybody um, in the path of this thing. Please, if you can, get out. If you have evacuation orders. Stay safe. There's no evacuation orders of the time of filming this show. Yeah. We film on Fridays, so... Um, Polls. Yep, they've been changing. Polls, they've been a-changing. Yep, we're going to have to talk about the the top Democratic candidates pretty soon. Yeah, and uh, the, <clears throat> the I'm bringing this up and I can't back it up, but the prime, or the lineup for the next debate has been announced. It for, has. Uh, CNN. Um, ten people on stage? Was, yes. Who was it? CNBC, maybe? I don't remember who does it. I think it's still a CNN one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so check that out. That'll I think we might a do circus. a viewing party. Oh, man, that'd be cool. Yeah. If you're interested, let us know. It'd be cool to get some feedback to see if it'd be worth uh, putting together and uh, get some folks to sit and provide commentary, and it'd be a good time. I know that for sure. Yeah. Open to both sides. Um, and uh, anything else? Well, you know, the other thing, big thing in the polls, Biden, uh, Bernie, Warren, all sitting at 20, 20, 20. Yeah, roughly. To a poll. Yeah. Politico. But, um, I tell you, I get really frustrated. There's some, like, really nasty hit pieces out there on Biden. And some of them are just baseless. Vice News did one that was, like, below the belt, claiming that if you are for, uh, universal health care, then, um, it's an insult to his dead son. And he's and Vice claimed that he said this in yeah. a, a thing in a campaign ad. I watched the campaign ad. He says nothing of the sort. He says, you know, it's personal to him and he believes in the Affordable Care Act. I, I think that's respectable. Fight for what you believe in. Yeah. I think that's nice. Well, we're entering the time of the smears. I know. know. The smear campaigns and Well and my thing with Biden though, he's he's <laughs> Shooting himself in the well, foot. Well, he's gonna. He's you gonna, don't need to help him. He's gonna probably do himself in. I feel bad for talking him. Talking about things. I feel guilty saying I feel bad for him, but I I don't think he looks good. I don't think he's. I told you offline that I thought that, you know, more and more that he's probably not. He probably is gonna drop. He needs to drop out at some point. I mean, 
I, you know, I promise you, he will not. He won't. Unless he just... No. Boom. No, no, something major will have to happen. I mean, I still believe right now he will be the one who gets the nomination and runs against Trump. I'm like... So, uh, I'm today 80% sure of that. My dad, thanks dad, sent me an article saying John Case interview with John Kasich. Yep. Uh, I think it was put a change. Yep. But saying uh, he sees no... Yep, he's not going to do it clear way to beat Trump. Yep, he's not going to do it. This is my issue, though, and I said this to my dad. He's not talking about beating Trump. He's talking about him winning the presidency. Really? And, you know, he says, I just don't see a way to, to win. And that's very different from not seeing a way to beating Trump. If, if he wants to beat Trump, he could run as a third party. And my dad brought up, if you're going to go to all that work, spend all that money and time away from your family, you would think you would want to win. And I get that, and that's absolutely fair. But there is a difference between a road to winning and a road to beating Trump. I think a third party, a strong third party Republican guy running out there, get Mitt Romney to go third party. Yeah, he's too comfortable. You don't think he'd steal some of the vote? No, no. Whoever would do that, yes, would steal some of the vote. Yeah. But Mitt Romney, I don't think he'd oh, be he would. time for him. He, he, yeah. It's not good. He's too comfortable in the Senate, I believe. Um, maybe down the road, though. Would not be surprised at that. They're getting too old. Like, ugh. I know. I, I know. I'm I, tired of the same names. I am, too. It's one of the major draws for Mayor Pete, who I, I still like to a large, large extent. Now, granted, you could argue he hasn't really handled his little mishap at home base so well, so... Well, and uh, also I was reading about uh, Cortez, AOC's mouthing off about the Electoral College. Yeah. I don't like the Electoral College. I get the idea. You know, she's... the, The Republicans argue that without the Electoral College, states would be not important, non-existent. Politicians would only go to... California, New York, the places with the big population centers, hmm. and that would really discredit the rural states and stuff. I mean, sure, you can make an argument for that. But. So she turned that argument on them and said, well, what about the Republicans in the blue states? Yeah. If we get rid of the Electoral College, everyone's vote matters equally. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Popular vote doesn't really get, doesn't matter today. I mean... There's been candidates recently who have won the popular vote, but not the presidency. No way. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems to be a thing to keep tapping to the Democrats. <laughs> and on that note, yeah, I think it's time to end. That sounds good. Guys, it's 77 degrees in here. That's our cue. It's time to get out of this hot box. Out of the hot box. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed, hopefully not, a too convoluted tour and a historical journey yeah. about mental health. In America, there's so more much to, to talk about. Yeah, there's just too much to cram into an hour and 22 and minutes. so much that we didn't talk about even in the research we did. So yep. uh, if we missed anything, if we got something wrong, let us know. Yeah. If you want us to do a show, if you had an idea for a show, let us know. And uh, I hope you tune in next week when we tackle what is Big Pharma. Yeah. So All they're in that, too. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying your Monday, everyone, assuming this is out then. And if you're enjoying your Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, either you're a slacker or I failed at getting this uploaded. Hopefully the former. Yep. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks. Take care. Have a nice day. Have a nice week.